agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. Welcome to Politics Guys, the place where bipartisan rationalists I'm Trey Warnworth, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I am joined once again by the professor of law at Chase Law School, face-to-face, Ken Katkin. Hey, hey, Trey, it's great to be back. No, I mean, you know, it's always weird. We, 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 you know, we do these shows uh, almost sequentially, and so we're thinking about the different topics, and so uh, it's fun to kind of gears as we move into this. But uh, what you and I have been doing for these midweek shows for a number of weeks now, I mean, all the way back into last year, is we've been going through the Constitution. Listeners said, hey, go through the Constitution, kind of break it down. And I was really kind of excited about that, but we both kind of wondered, how long is everybody going to put up with us? <laughs> you know, two... <laughs> it's, it's, it's a big Constitution. I mean, it does fit in a pocket, but yeah, there's still, it's still a lot to talk through. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's good we're not doing the Indian Constitution, right? That'd be like a 10-year project. It'd be a voyage. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, and and so what we're what we're doing this week is is we're going to be introducing and getting into Article Two. So I just want to kind of set everybody up. Uh, and, and so we started with the preamble of the Constitution. Well, really, what we started with was the origins of the Constitution. We talked about the origins of the Constitution. We talked about why we get the Constitution that we do. Then we moved into the preamble, and then we spend a lot of time in uh, Article One because that's a lot of where the action of the Constitution is happening with the power of government. We talked about why that is. What we're going to start doing this week is getting into Article 2, which is dealing with uh, uh, the presidency. And, and, and that's what we're going to be taking on uh, uh, this week. Let's get into that in just a moment. So, Ken, I was excited that we were getting to Article 2. I mean, I love Article 1. I love Congress. But, of course, I, my scholarly background is I'm a presidential scholar, right? right? Uh, and so I always tell my undergraduates, we actually, we teach, we, we can't quite I don't have a thousand professors. It's a smaller university that I teach at. Uh, and so I, we teach a presidency in Congress class. And so when I say we, I mean me. And because uh, <laughs> as soon as I had the seniority to do that, that was going to be mine. Right. Uh, but I always tell my students, I'm like, look, I'm not going to neglect Congress, but I'm not going to spend all my time on Congress either because I want to do some presidency <laughs> stuff. So I kind of feel uh, 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 similarly here. Uh, you know, the American presidency can, it's a unique, you know, it's it's it, it, it's it's a it's a unusual presidency, and and in that sense, is it's really for the country. We were really kind of we talked about this early on in our country's first constitution, the Articles of Confederation. We didn't create an executive explicitly because executive power at that juncture was being equated to the tyranny of George the Third, right? Rightfully or wrongfully, that's where that's being connected to. But then after the Revolutionary War, we begin to see that lack of an executive as, the, as a flaw. And so you get founders like Alexander Hamilton, who think that executive power is not just compatible with, but even necessary for a functional republic. Or as he and other framers would have put it, you know, the president is designed to give energy to the republican system. Now, not everybody's convinced, right? So for many, this idea of the executive article too, this is a this is an even more contested portion of the Constitution. Uh, uh, others thought that executive power is not compatible with republicanism at all, right? To have an executive is to kind of to, to miss out on the importance of Congress. Uh, and so the revolutionaries of 1776, you know, they saw the Declaration of Independence as that embodiment of good government. And, you know, they're, they're leery. 
So you have this really uh, complicated desire about what should happen in Article 2. And the other element here, we mentioned this a little bit back when we were introducing the Constitution, was, of course, the guy who's presiding over the con- I mean, everybody who's, who's, who's writing the Constitution is looking at the guy who's presiding, George Washington, and going, here's the guy, <laughs> right? Here's the guy. And, and, and I, don't, it's, I don't think there's any historians or political scientists who would have disagreed that we probably would have ended up with a slightly different Article 2 had Washington not been presiding and everybody in the room been nearly unanimous right. that he ought to be holding one of those uh, 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 roles. As a matter of fact, even at the time Monroe writes to Jefferson in France uh, uh, telling him, hey, just let you know, we, we, we gave a lot of leeway in his words to the creation of the president because in his words, it's assumed it will be Washington, end quote, right? So we even have that contemporary account that Article 2, it's probably a little more robust uh, uh, than what we might have, uh, have thought in other ways. And, but at the same time, and this is what I think makes it uh, uh, unique, is, is that Article 2 is broadly written, and as a result of that broadly written nature, has led to a lot of controversy over what the actual limits and important uh, uh, elements uh, 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 of Article 2 is. So before we start getting into like the very first portion of Article 2, what are your kind of thoughts on Article 2 as a whole? And we did the same thing for Article 1, so I wanted to kind of give it that same position. I mean, as, I'm so glad you mentioned the Articles of Confederation because I think exactly as you said, the, 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 the framers by and large thought that although we needed federal law and we needed a Continental Congress um, because there's certain objectives like establishing an internal free trade zone in the United States or, or protecting the common defense. There's certain things that needed to be coordinated on a national level. But I think they still thought um, that if you build up a big administration in, in Washington capable of enforcing federal law, that that, that administration is going to um, have the capability of turning itself into a dictatorship tyranny, and you really don't want that. And it's better to just rely on the state and local governments to enforce the federal laws rather than creating some, some federal um, arm that can enforce federal laws. But they did find um, during that experience with the Articles of Confederation that um, they, the, 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 those central objectives for which the national government was created, protecting the common defense and, and establishing an internal free trade zone, that, that, that government under the Continental Congress was just too weak to, to, to achieve those goals. That, that there, there was a lot of balkanization of the economy. States were fighting trade wars against each other. The, the Revolutionary War itself, um, you know, was, was organized very haphazardly. And the, although everybody loved the job that George Washington did as commander in chief uh, in the Continental Army, they, you know, they knew that he didn't have a, a system that was uh, capably able to supply him with soldiers, with, with resources, things like that. So they, they needed a, a stronger executive. One of the biggest debates at the Constitutional Convention was whether they should have one single president or whether they should have like three co-presidents. And uh, um, right, yeah. we, 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 where two would have to agree. Yeah, two yeah. would have to agree yeah. to get anything done. And and the and the third, the one, even the one who didn't agree, would be allowed to run to Congress and and say, you know, look, you need to change the law to not let these two do this terrible thing. And uh, um, yeah, and so they they, they were uh, thinking that an executive triumvirate would be a way of. Um, some checks and balances within the executive. Um, but George Washington himself spoke against that. And right. he said uh, in, his, in his study of Roman history, 
he'd learned that Rome had had two different uh, triumvirates and both times that landed up with one killing the other two. <laughs> yeah. He didn't think it was a great system. <laughs> so uh, they ended up being persuaded by him uh, that, that a, a single um, executive would be. But one of the, the main checks and balance, they were still concerned about checks and balances quite a bit. And, and one of the main checks and balances that they, they did codify in our constitution uh, was that although they gave the president uh, a vice president, they actually did not create um, any any other parts of the executive branch in right. the Constitution. So the idea was that would be Congress's biggest check and balance against a president. There's only so much tyranny a president could get up to if he's got to do it all with his own hands or with the help of his vice president. <laughs> and so if, if, if Congress trusted him, they could give him an administration. And if they were worried about him, they could they could shrink his administration. Exactly. Well, and, and so when I when I think about it, and you're hitting on a lot of them, I think there's kind of it's again, this is a simplification, but there's kind of four major areas that, that they're thinking about, right? As you've already mentioned, is it an individual or a council? And that kind of gets decided. Now, the second big one that's going to be in here is how should be presidents selected and elected? That's a huge one. And we've talked about it a lot of different ways on the show sometimes. Uh, and then we're, the, the third question is going to be how long should presidents remain in office and how does that overlap or don't, doesn't overlap with Congress? And then, of course, maybe the biggest of all of them, what's the actual scope of that president's power? Um, you know, as a matter of fact, one reading of the reason we get uh, presidents the way that we do is, you know, Hamilton effectively kind of floats what almost seems to be this ridiculously powerful uh, uh, system. And one historical reading of that is, is he's trying to kind of make it that seem so, you know, wow, this could be on the table that you could have a more presidency centered, <laughs> you know. Uh, compromise, if you will, right? Uh, you know, Hamilton argued that presidents ought to be uh, elected for life. Uh, and, you know, he kind of pops that out there uh, 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 to do that. And then, of course, just like we talked with Article 1, and, you know, I mean, I guess as listeners think about this, it's hard to overemphasize this. But at the same time, I know it sometimes can be frustrating when you're thinking about the selection election process. Can't think about it without thinking about slavery. Right. And, and what's, what's happening in the states at that, at that juncture. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So anything else on that kind of broad before we start reading through the constitution? No, I, I think that sort of sets the stage for it. And we, today we're only going to do article two, section one, right? Yeah. That's what yeah. we're going to focus on. So here. the yeah. scope of the president's power, they're mostly going to have to wait. Until <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Next time. Yeah, yeah. Next time. But, yeah. but the, the others we can definitely talk about now. Well, let's take a break here for just a moment. When we come back, we're going to start getting right there into section one. Okay, so, uh, Ken, let's go ahead and just start reading through Section 1. So Article one, uh, Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution uh, says, The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. Well, let's talk about that a lot, of course. Uh, he shall hold his office during the four years and, together with the vice president, chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors, equal to the number of whole senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of, of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. The elector shall be... And then we're going to pause there, yeah. uh, because, in fact, that next phrase that we'll start to get into is, in matter of fact, amended. radically amended, yeah. right? You know, because of some issues that we're going to need to talk about. So, you know, I think that the place to really start, uh, you know, again, maybe I'm, I'm giving my bias as a, as a presidency scholar, is you wouldn't think that that first phrase, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. 
that is that's a, a wildly important portion yeah. of the Constitution because initially is probably most likely viewed as a statement of fact in the sense you know Congress has congressional power, the president has presidential power, uh, but maybe it is a vesting clause, is yep. what we call it today, meaning that the president might have some inherent executive powers that are not necessarily listed out later on in, uh, in Article 2. So start us off there, Ken. Yeah, uh, this is probably going to sound like kind of dense verbiage at first, but I, I hope to make it as simple as possible. But well, this is, just, yeah, this is a dense, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. giving you some defense here. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. dense it's stuff. Just, yeah. this is, this is, it's important, but it's dense. So that, that phrase, the executive power, it's the executive power that should be vested in the president of the United States. That's a different verbal formulation than what was used in Article One, Section One. So yes, which is a lot of some of the arguments sometimes for yeah. why it's a specific grant. So it, talk right, to us right. About Article that. One, yeah. Section One says all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress. So that language, the all legislative powers herein granted, um, I think really makes it crystal clear. That, that Congress is only getting the powers that are herein granted. I.e. primarily Article 1, Section, Section 8. 8. Yeah, yeah, the list of enumerated powers. Um, whereas uh, Article 2, Section 1 says the, the executive power shall be vested in a president. And so people have asked the question, well, does that only mean the, the enumerated powers, which are, which are going to be enumerated in, in, in Article 2, Section 2? Um, or is there just some independent concept of does every nation have executive power of the nation? And that's what's being vested here in the, in the person of the president. And, and so that might have some independent content. Um, and that, that has been a, 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 a continuous debate throughout American history. I think the modern take on that, which largely comes from the Youngstown Steel case, is, is that there's um, a, the, the United States of America itself has inherent executive power. Um, and, and that that power is vested in the person of the president. So the president can sometimes um, go beyond uh, his other enumerated powers and, and beyond uh, the statutes that Congress has enacted um, to do things like respond to emergencies, because responding to an emergency would be part of the executive power that a country would have to have. If a country couldn't respond to an emergency, then the country would be destroyed by the emergency. And there's and so, nothing. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And so, and so if the country can respond... Well, how, how, is, how is that? Well, it's because that executive power is vested in the president. So and that's that even goes there. beyond Youngstown Steel. I mean, the, the early uh, portions of that comes from uh, 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 President Lincoln, you know, effectively saying that this power even includes the ability to potentially suspend po other portions of the Constitution. Yeah. Right? So he kind of takes a, a much kind of further view of that. But you're right. That's not the mo yeah. necessarily not the modern, modern conception. Model. Yeah, Lincoln. Yeah. So he said, he, should, should he enforce... Uh, uh, um, uh, all the law, should he enforce every law and therefore let the country be destroyed, or should he enforce all the laws but one so that he can save the country? And uh, um, yeah, something that maybe Biden will be echoing soon when we hit the, de the debt ceiling. But yeah, so there's that. So the executive power, I think, largely has been taken by modern Supreme Court, at least, to mean that the president has a little bit of power to take action when the country needs action to be taken. And that that, um, you know, may go beyond his, his other enumerated powers. Or but now contemporary too. presidents kind of starting with uh, uh, Reagan have even sometimes taken that a step further. Uh, and we sometimes call those the, you know, the unitary presidents theorist who argue that there is maybe even a bigger bundle of items that are included here in this phrase. 
Um, I, I mean, yeah. we've never had a chance to actually talk about yeah, that, I, I think that the particular one. Unitary thing. executive theory. I would have rooted it in the in the in the words uh, a president rather than in the words the executive power. Right. Yeah. So the the idea would be since the executive power is vested in a president, that that's one person. Right. So one person would be unitary executive. Right. right. So. So, yeah, so that is a theory. There's, there's a question, and that largely comes up in the sense, I think, of um, how much Congress can assign uh, powers and duties to um, other agencies in the executive branch that, that um, are not directly supervised by the president. So, so for instance, today, it's, it's somewhat commonplace to think, um, well, we've all been watching that the Federal Reserve Bank might raise the interest rates or might lower the interest rates to, 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 to deal with inflation. Well, they, Congress, by statute, gave them the authority to do that. The, the president doesn't directly supervise that. And so sort of strong proponents of the unitary executive theory, which would not include majorities of the Supreme Court, you know, would say, well, if the president ordered them to um, raise or lower the interest rate, they would have to do that because they're basically executing laws of the United States. And only the president can execute the laws of the United States. So if there's if there's people below the president, but in the executive branch, um, since he's the one that has all the executive power invested in him, he has the power to direct all, all executive activities. But, well, since we did it in the, in, in the, in the uh, major show, that might be a better even example. The EPA is oftentimes one of those, right? To what yes. extent can presidents, you might think of it as reaching down and saying, look, we, you need to push it in this particular direction. And why? Because I'm your boss. Yeah. I mean, under so that, that, yeah, so within the actual um, uh, administration, the EPA actually is a, a single-headed agency. It's headed by a, an administrator, and we typically think that the single-headed agencies are, are more subject to presidential control. Right. Whereas the um, the the thing like the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve are not. Yeah, they're not. They take action by a vote, and and under the statutes that authorize them. When they vote, their vote has legal effect. So, and, and in fact, they have terms longer than the president. So some of them are holdovers. Yeah, what, let's see, what, I don't even remember their terms right off the time. How long like, is like it? Like six years or eight years. Something like that. Yeah. So, and, and so there's always political diversity within the governors. And, and uh, so that would be more of a, a, you know, for people who believe in a unitary executive theory, they would generally say that um, if the president would order the, 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 that the interest rate be different than what the Board of Governors uh, says, he must have the constitutional authority to do that because they are executing laws and all execution of laws should be vested in the president. The court has, you know, has, you know, I would say the modern conservative court probably has more sympathy for that view than most courts have had, but they have not yet declared the Federal Reserve Bank unconstitutional yeah. or anything like that. <laughs> we still have a lot of multi-headed agencies in the government that Congress created by statute. And Congress authorized them to take actions by vote, and and those actions have legal effects. So all of that is inconsistent with the unitary executive. Well, you know, as before we continue to kind of move forward here, we need to take a moment and just kind of end our preview. Uh, so if you'd like to continue to listen to Ken and myself uh, chat about Article Two, we'd love to have you. But we need you to become a, a supporter of the Politics Guys for that to happen. And so we hope we've kind of wet your whistle. You want to do this? And by the way, you know, if you like this and you're listening to it, you can always go back. Like we were just talking about, we've already covered Article One and the preamble and the overview. We'd love for you to join in those as well. And you can do that by becoming a supporter. Uh, so if you are interested in becoming a supporter, you can do that by heading to Patreon.com/slash/PoliticsGuys. You want to unlock the rest of this episode again, just head to patreon.com slash politics guys. You can also head to Venmo where we're at politics guys, or you can support the show through PayPal. There's a lot of different ways to do that. You can see all of those in the show notes on the podcast app of your choice, 
or if you're, uh, you'd like to head to the website and see kind of all the different levels, you can head to politicsguys.com slash support. So again, politicsguys.com slash support. You'll get the rest of this show. You'll get our other shows. Now, if you're not in a, final, a financial position to do that, uh, just uh, reach out to Mike at politicsguys.com and he'll try to get you set up. Uh, we, even if you're not a supporter, we'd love for you to share this episode or others on whichever podcast app you use. So if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, or anything else, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find all of that in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Will Morano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode next week. I hope you'll join us then.